True Fire narratives are taken from official NFPA, NIOSH, and USFA reports. Information may also come from news media accounts and may be supplemented by interviews with people involved in the incidents. This show does not imply or suggest that any individual or group is responsible for the outcome. It is morning, three days before Christmas, 1999. Keokuk, Iowa, a small city along the banks of the Mississippi River, home to about 12,500. In the duplex on Franklin Street, a four-year-old boy named Jacob turns on a kitchen stove while his mother is still asleep. The burners start some plastic high chair trays stored on top of the stove on fire. That fire soon spreads throughout the kitchen. Jacob runs upstairs to wake his mother, Melissa. She finds the smoke and heat too intense to get past it to her other children's bedroom. Three more kids are in there. Melissa grabs Jacob and puts him out a second floor window onto the roof. She again tries to get to the children's bedroom, but is again forced back. Now she goes back to the window, climbs out onto the roof with Jacob, and begins screaming for help. Someone, someone get help! Please! Help! Someone! A boy going out to shovel snow sees her. He runs home to tell his mother, who calls 911 and then sprints over to help. Within seconds, other calls are coming. The fire in the old house would be like no other the Keokuk Fire Department had ever experienced. On this episode of True Fire, we'll look back at the Keokuk apartment fire and find out what lessons were learned. Engine 53, engine 54, engine 53, ladder 63, ladder 64, battalion 6. But the report is structure fire. Explosion. A house fire. Helicopter down. Brad. Train derailment. Church with an attic well involved. For an explosion in a factory. On a shooting. Report of a DC 10 This is True Fire. Real life stories of firefighters that demand to be told. Now, here's your host, award-winning journalist, Scott Orr. Five of Keokuk's 15 total firefighters were on shift Wednesday morning, December 22, 1999. They were wrapping up a motor vehicle crash. Firefighter Cindy Crew went with the ambulance transporting a victim to the hospital. She was hurt very badly. She was unconscious. And typically, if we've got somebody that's in that bad of shape, one or two of the firefighters would ride with the ambulance to help them out. The remaining firefighters at work were Assistant Chief Dave McNally, Lieutenant Jeff Fuller, and firefighters Nathan Tuck and Jason Bidding. Actually, a total of six people were working that day. The five at the crash scene and the fire chief, Mark Wessel. Another crew member normally would have been at work, but was out on vacation. At 8.24 a.m., Kia Cook's 911 center dispatched the fire. It was two miles away from the crash scene. The four remaining crew members loaded up onto their Quint, designated Aerial 2, 
and rescue pumper three and responded to the fire. At the same time, Chief Wessel was just driving up to his office. As I was unlocking my office door, dispatch toned them out for a structure fire with three children trapped. Still dressed in street clothes, he went to the hospital to get firefighter crew. She was waiting for the engine to come pick her up. While I was sitting there, Chief Wessel came running around the corner and told me, we have to go now. We have a fire with people inside. It took four minutes for the fire units to arrive at the old house, now converted to a duplex. Heavy smoke was pouring from it. At 8.28 a.m., Ariel 2 rolled into position. Lieutenant Fuller, aboard Rescue Pumper 3, stopped to catch a hydrant about a block away. The pumper laid a five-inch supply line. The lieutenant connected the hose to the hydrant and then continued to the fire ground on foot. Assistant Chief McNally, riding Aerial 2, radioed a report of white to brown smoke coming from the house. He requested a callback for six off-duty firefighters to respond to the scene. Jacob McFarland, the four-year-old, and his mother, Melissa Cooper, had just gotten off the roof with the help of neighbors. She frantically told McNally that her three kids were still inside. McNally immediately masked up and went into the house to search. As the ranking officer on scene, he would have been expected to do a size up and take command, but he never did. You have three children trapped. He made that decision to go after those children, and, and I'll stand behind him 100% on that. At 8.31 a.m., Fire Chief Mark Wessel rolled up on the scene with Firefighter Cindy Crew. What I had seen when I arrived was typical structure fire. Couldn't see any flame showing at the time, but we had moderate smoke coming out of the building. He sent Nathan Tuck and Jason Bidding into the house to assist Dave McNally. None of the three carried a hose. They are all inside, and, I, and there was no line to the house. And I was just, oh my God, they're in there and there's no water. You know, I've got to get water to them. At about the same time, McNally found 22-month-old Robert Cooper and handed him out to a police officer. That officer started CPR and took the toddler to the hospital. Seconds later, McNally handed Chief Wessel another victim, Robert's twin sister, Rebecca. Wessel looked for an EMS crew to treat her, but there was none, so he started CPR on the unresponsive girl. And I said, we have to get this baby to the hospital, which was, you know, like three, four blocks from the scene, something like that. A police captain offered to run them to the hospital in his cruiser, and Wessel agreed. The cop drove fast, and it only took about one minute to get there. While all this was going on, Cindy Crew pulled an inch and a half hose line. Everybody else was inside, so I had to take the line up to the house, go back to the pump panel, and charge the line, and Lieutenant Fuller was at the hydrant. I, I left it up there, went back, and then finished getting my gear on so I could go inside. My gear was in the fire truck. She looked back and could see flames inside the front door. By the time she returned to the front porch, she found the hose had burned through and water was pouring out. That was odd, she thought, because it happened so quickly. 
and uh, so I had to run another line. She went back to aerial two and pulled another inch and a half pre-connect off the rig. With the nozzle wide open, she tried to make entry, but only managed to get about eight feet inside the door before the incredible heat forced her back out. Then the line went dry. The intake valve from the hydrant hadn't been opened, and the 500-gallon tank on board Ariel 2 had run out. Lieutenant Fuller had just reached the pump panel, and he quickly opened the valve and recharged the line. Wessel got back to the scene from the hospital at 8.38 a.m. 8.40 a.m. Engine 6, a reserve unit staffed by two firefighters, arrived at the scene. Wessel told them to go with Lieutenant Fuller and search for a person reported trapped in the other apartment of the duplex. That resident, it turned out, wasn't home at all. He'd walked to breakfast, leaving his car at the house. Wessel next tried to contact McNally, the only firefighter inside the burning building with a radio. He got no reply. He asked if anyone had seen McNally, but no one had. Realizing he didn't know where his men were, Wessel began to worry. I looked around for my personnel, and I, there were a couple of them missing, so I asked firefighter crew, I said, go to the back of the house. I can't find Mac, and I can't find Jason. I said, see if they're in the back. And uh, she came back around, and she said, Chief, I don't see him, and I don't see Nate either. They were in serious trouble. A flashover where the heat of a fire caused the contents of a room to suddenly ignite all at once, it happened in the kitchen. Even in protective gear, a firefighter has virtually no chance of surviving the awesome heat of a flashover. The house's balloon frame construction allowed the fire to spread rapidly to the dining room, living room, and up the stairway. I knew my firefighters were in trouble. I knew that if they weren't outside, they were in very dire straits, and uh, my heart sank. I knew that life had changed. It was just bad. When Ariel 1 arrived at 8.50 a.m., Wessel assigned the four firefighters on it to search for the missing men. They knocked back the fire with some difficulty and got inside. At 9 a.m., they found Nate Tuck dead on the living room floor. Dave McNally's body was found at the top of the staircase, near the lifeless body of the remaining child he was trying to rescue, seven-year-old Jessica McFarland. He almost made it. He was a stairway away because a stairway dumped right to the front door. Jason Bidding was found on the floor of the master bedroom. All the firefighters' air bottles had run out. The twins taken to the hospital earlier also died. The fire was out by 1.30 p.m. Mutual aid crews took charge of the overhaul at 3.30 p.m. When we return, I'll take a look at what investigators said about the deaths of the firefighters. firefighters lost their lives on that day in December 1999. 
They were Assistant Chief Dave McNally. He was 48 years old and was a 25-year veteran of the department. He was married with three children. Firefighter Jason Bidding, 29, had been on the department for six years. He was married with three children also. And firefighter Nate Tuck was 39 years old. He was a four-year member of the department with a wife and two children. An autopsy showed that the firefighters died of a combination of smoke inhalation, burns, and exposure to extreme heat. That's consistent with a flashover. The National Fire Protection Association investigated, as it always does, and said several factors contributed to the deaths of the firefighters. There was no proper building or incident size up. The first firefighters on the scene never made a complete report of what they found. McNally radioed in that he saw heavy smoke coming from the building, but that was all. Mom was standing out in the middle of the street. I'm not exactly sure what she had on, pajamas or something, and she was covered in soot, and she had a young child in her hand that was also covered in soot, and she was pretty uh, frantic and screaming that her babies were inside, her babies were inside, and I think the focus just went to cause the deviation from standard operating guidelines, and that was the decision that Chief McNally made. An incident command system was not established. The report said Chief Wessel had little or no information about where the three interior firefighters were and what they were doing. It added that when he left the scene, no one was put in command while he was gone. There was also no accountability system. When Wessel arrived, he had no way to know what McNally was doing. He sent Tuck and Bidding in to help search. The NFPA noted that once Wessel went to the hospital, the three men were unaccounted for. They didn't have enough resources to conduct rescues and fight the fire. Once three of the five firefighters were inside searching for victims, no one was left to work the fire. Lieutenant Fuller was dealing with the line at the hydrant and then walking to the fire ground. Only firefighter Cindy Crew was available to pull a hose right away, but she wasn't fully suited up, having just returned from the hospital. The NFPA requires four members per engine and a minimum of four per quint, more if it's assigned as a ladder company. That is three more people than were even on shift that morning. Plus, the NFPA says the two apparatus that responded weren't enough. Let's put it this way. If you go by NFPA, you're looking at 12 firefighters and a chief officer, you know, on an initial structure response. And, of course, we've got three main components that we're trying to accomplish all at one time, and that's rescue, suppression, and ventilation. And... There just weren't enough people to handle what was going on. The lack of staffing meant there was no rapid intervention crew in place to rescue the missing men. 
The intense heat of the flashover apparently destroyed the three interior firefighters' pass alarms and their low air alarms. NFPA also said there were no working smoke detectors in the house, and that if there had been, the outcome could have been very different. The National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH, also investigated. NIOSH issued essentially the same findings after their study, but the agency was very specific about a couple of things. Quoting from the report, the small size of the initial responding crew could not appropriately and safely respond to the necessary fireground operations. End quote. A second comment was that firefighters should not enter a room until a hose line is in position. That was part of what NIOSH called a defensive search technique, which it said should have been used. The Keokuk Fire Department made major changes after this deadly fire on Franklin Street. We basically took all of our standard operating guidelines and procedures, rules and regulations, and we put them in the round file. And what we tried to do was sit, and it took us almost two years to get it completed, but we took and tried to dissect each one of our operations that we might be exposed to. And instead of basing it on, let's say, uh, across the country, you know, can this or can that type of SOG guidelines, we tried to put them all into perspective as to what our, the Keokuk Fire Department's, true capabilities are in different sets of circumstances. In 2005, McNally, Tuck, and Bidding were honored with a fitting memorial made of black granite and placed in a city park. Melissa Cooper and her husband bought the house after the fire, and they had it demolished. Cindy Crew left the fire department some years later. The loss was, and is still, hard for her to accept. I would say for several years it was pretty tough. Often just bursting out in tears, you know, driving down the road, just, you know, a lot of pain, a lot of survivor guilt. If God had taken four firefighters that day, I would have been the fourth. Her son became a Keokuk firefighter. Chief Mark Wessel retired from the fire department in 2011 after more than 35 years of service. He is still haunted by the events of that day in December 1999, more than 20 years ago. When I thought about safety, I always thought about our customer safety. And it transitioned me into my first and foremost job was to assure my firefighter's safety first. Because if we can't operate safely, we certainly can't be of any assistance to anybody else. We got focused strictly on rescue, not on checking that fire and checking what could hurt us. And we, for all practical purposes, we became part of the problem. And that's not what we're there to do. A tragedy occurred. I mean, there were three young children that passed away that day and three great firefighters. You make decisions and uh, you live and die by them. And that's been kind of my motivation after that fire was to try and teach firefighters to really think it through before they make a uh, 
commitment to something and think about what they have to do. Take those few extra seconds and figure it out and figure it out correctly. Like all fires in which firefighters lose their lives, there were mistakes made that seem obvious in retrospect. But in the moment, the three men who died trying to save the children believed they were doing what they had to do. Sometimes, that's all we can ask of people with this dangerous job. I'm Scott Orr. Thanks for listening to this episode of True Fire. True Fire is written and produced by Scott Orr. For more information about the incident featured in this episode, visit our website, truefirepodcast.com.